0: jumping back into our series called heaven is coming now over the next six weeks which is the remainder of our series here we're gonna be walking through the book of revelation various chapters through the book that speak about the reality of heaven and we're gonna look at what heaven is actually like you see as we look at the book of revelation the apostle john who wrote this book he's also the same john who wrote the gospel of john John was banished to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean because he was preaching about Jesus. And while he was on this island, he received a vision from the Lord which is recorded in the book of Revelation. And at the end, see here's the context, at the end of the 1st century, Christians in the Roman Empire were being were being persecuted intensely. They were facing all kinds of difficult circumstances and so this book, this this book of Revelation is a vision from God meant to encourage the believers with the reality of the power and authority of God, with the certainty of his plan for history, and with the future reality of heaven. The book was meant to challenge you, are you on Jesus' team or not? And if you are, then you have nothing to worry about at the end of the day because it's all going to be okay because Jesus wins and heaven is coming. And I think, friends, this is the same message we need to hear. I think the book of of Revelation that that speaks to the encouragement that we need is a message for us. Because I I think this book should challenge us. I think the question that we're going to, to ask this morning is this. In the state of sin and death and decay in this world and in us, how do we know that everything is going to be made right? How do we know everything's going to be okay? What's the solution to that issue or that problem or that reality? See, we're going to answer this question, who is able to save? Who's worthy to redeem all of creation? See, this gets at the heart of our Christian hope. And this, I hope, speaks to your heart this morning. Because you know what? We can't save ourselves. And we have to answer that question, but who can? And Revelation chapter 4 and 5 answers that question. So here's what we're going to do this morning. If you want to open up your Bible here to Revelation chapter 4, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 today. So in your Bible, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. So if you want to start at the end and work your way backwards, you'll find Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So we're going to address this question or this issue of, of... our hope and where it should lie by proclaiming two realities. These chapters help us to see two realities and it's this, you'll see them on the screen. Number one, God is on the throne. And then number two, Jesus alone can save. And the result of these two truths that God is on the throne and that Jesus alone can save is worship. And we're going to see that in Revelation chapters four and five. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read chapter 4 first, and then we'll work our way through chapter 4 for a few minutes, and then we'll come to chapter 5 later. So let's read Revelation chapter 4, proclaiming this first reality that God is on the throne. So this is the vision that John writes that he sees. Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads from the throne came flashes of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder in front of the throne seven lamps were blazing these are the seven spirits of God also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sat on the throne... And who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Now... As we look at this scene, here's the big picture of what's happening. John is having a vision of the current reality of heaven today. So let me explain what I mean here. This, this picture, what we see here is what we call the present heaven or the intermediate state of heaven. What this means is that the new heaven and new earth has not come yet. We've talked about this already in our series, that heaven in the eternal sense is going to be God's redeemed creation. So there will be a new earth that will be where the presence of God is with his people. And so this new heavens and new earth isn't here yet. And so when, when we look at this scene, we have to understand that this reality of a new heavens and new earth isn't here. It only will happen after the resurrection after the judgment, after Jesus comes. And so when we, as, as, as people today, when we say that a loved one dies and goes to heaven, we have to stop and ask a question like, what do we mean by that? If the new heavens and new earth isn't here yet, where is this person in heaven today? So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, let me put a little context to it here. Human beings... We're created as a body and soul united together. We are never designed to be separated permanently and to live in some disembodied existence. Human beings are designed, and really what it means, the definition of what it means to be a human, is material and immaterial united together. So if you fast forward to the new heavens and new earth. The definition of what it means to be in heaven in a resurrected body is to be again in a bodily and spirit existence together. And so for all eternity, we will have that material and immaterialness to our humanity. But that resurrection hasn't happened yet. So the in-between time between now when we're in body and soul and between heaven, the new heavens and new earth when we're resurrected with body and soul, we call the intermediate state. Now, this is a a disembodied temporary existence in the presence of God while we await the new heavens and new earth and our resurrection. So, if you're a Christian, this temporary existence is in the presence of God. And the Apostle Paul gives us a really vivid illustration of what this looks like, or at least how it feels to look ahead to that. You'll see on the screen here, I want to read an example here from Paul speaking and writing in Philippians chapter 1. He's writing as he's in jail in chains, suffering for this church. And in the midst of his suffering, he says these words about his longing to be with Christ. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 says, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet which, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. In other words, for the church. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound on account of me. See, what Paul says is, if I'm here in the body, I'm doing labor for God's kingdom, and that's a good thing. But it is better by far, and I'm torn between the two, because in my suffering, as soon as I depart this body, I am in the presence of Christ. That's that state that you, you go to the reality of the present heaven to be with God as you await the resurrection. It's this same uh, uh, picture of when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me today. That's what happens in this intermediate time as we await the new heavens and new earth. So when you do take your last breath, let's think about this. When you do take your last breath and go to be with the Lord, What is the reality that you will see? This is what chapter 4 explains. And it should encourage us. So let's take a look at what we see here in chapter 4. So go back to the beginning of the chapter. What I want to do is walk you through here to see who is in the throne room in the present heaven. And what they look like and what they're doing. So let's look at all the various players here in what's going on. First one I want you to see is in verses 2 to 3 that God is there at the center. Don't miss the location. God is at the center. Look at verses 2 and 3 here. At once I was in the Spirit, John says, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. See, John gives this picture of what the presence of God on the throne looks like. Now, he says that God has the Appearance of these precious stones. It doesn't say that he is those precious stones. So John is trying to give a, an illustration or a way of visualizing something that is almost impossible to describe. How would you describe how God looks on his throne? He tries to use the most brilliant colors and precious stones that he can imagine to try and help us imagine it. You see, what he, he, he uses here is precious stones that are translucent and brightly colored. Because as we know from other parts of the Bible, one way to understand the presence and the reality of God is that the Bible uses light. It says that God is light. And so to use translucent, colorful stones to describe the presence and reality of God helps to show the brilliance of of the glory of God as he's there on his throne. Translucent stones that reflect and illuminate his glory. See, these three stones, which Jasper is clear, it's like, could be a diamond, we don't really know, but it's a clear, sort of opaque stone. Rubies are red, emeralds are green. They don't necessarily have individual significance. They're supposed to be taken as a whole, together to describe the majesty and glory of God with the most brilliant colors that John can imagine. So God is at the center. Look at the next verse, verse 4. Who else is here? Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. Now, there's a lot of of, uh, discussion about who these elders are from scholars of the New Testament. And most believe that these are angels that are tasked with a special task of serving God and executing his work. Over creation, that they've got a, a task of worship and a task of, of doing the things that God asked them to do. They have a, a priestly role in a way. And the reason why there's twenty-four of them is because if you go all the way back to First Chronicles chapter 24, verses four to five, God commanded the Israelites to have twenty-four orders of priests. And these twenty-four orders of priests over God's people. I think are reflective of the reality of the present heaven where there are the 24 orders, if you will, of these angels that work in a priestly function around the throne of God. So they're dressed in white, which represents purity. They have gold crowns, which represents delegated authority from God. Okay, who else is here? Look at verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So the other uh, uh, person that is here is the Holy Spirit. Now, the the thunder and lightning and the, the blazing lamps are to be taken together as a symbol of judgment and of God's work. And your Bibles, like mine, they often say the seven spirits of God. Another way to say it is the sevenfold spirit of God. And the number seven in the Bible is a symbol of perfection. And so this is talking about the reality of the Holy Spirit being right in front of and with God the Father on the throne executing his work in the world. the next one look at the end of verse six there's some other symbols here we don't have time to touch on them all but in the center this is the middle of verse six in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back the first living creature was like a lion the second was like an ox the third had a face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle And each had four of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around and even under its wings. Can you imagine John having this vision of these four living creatures and how terrifying that would be? You see, these images are taken directly from Ezekiel chapter 1. If you want to spend some time this next week reading Ezekiel chapter 1, you can even read the first 10 chapters. It gets into the same details of the present reality of heaven. Isaiah chapter 6 is another one if you want to read Old Testament passages that speak about the same reality. But here's the point. These four living creatures are probably angels that John is envisioning and there's some kind of a representation there with the the physical features they have that represent all of the various types of creatures in God's creation. Because what, what what they may represent is the noblest... The strongest, the wisest, and the swiftest creatures in God's creation known to John. If he thinks of the most noble creature, it's a lion. The strongest, it's an ox. The wisest, it's a human being. And the fastest would be an eagle. And so he's trying to sort of cover all the bases, if you will. And so these, these angels that are right around the center of the throne, their six wings represent their power. And their speed to execute what God wants to do to uh, have authority over his creation. And their eyes represent how they see everything to help God in his omniscience. In him being all-knowing. Okay, let's stop here. Because there's a lot of symbols here about what's going on. But I think we need to visualize what's happening in the throne room spatially. Like what does it actually look like? God is at the center His glory and holiness and power are shining all around him. In front of the throne is the Holy Spirit who's the agent of judgment. Immediately around the center are the four living creatures who help rule creation. Surrounding them are the 24 elders, the angels who do God's bidding and act in a priestly role. And then here's the question. What are they doing when they look to the center and see God. Look at verse 8. The middle or end of verse 8. Day and night. They never stop saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Who was and is and is to come. He is eternal. He is past, present and future God Almighty over his creation. They never stop saying those words. And and you see as this flows through that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, this is verse nine, to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns, their authority before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Listen, the worship that they are doing is because of the reality that God is the creator. Do you see how that ends there? You are worthy because you created all things, and because by your will they were created, and by your power you sustain them. God is above and over everything and is worthy of worship constantly. See, we need to go back to our original concern this morning, our original question. In the painful reality of sin, painful reality of sin in us, the painful reality of evil and sin and decay and death in the world around us. We have to ask this question, where do we place our hope? What is the reality of That is more real in a sense than all of this suffering that we experience. See, the picture of the throne room of heaven is clear. No matter the circumstances of your life, God is on the throne today. Right now. Just as the persecuted Christians of the first century whom John brought this vision to needed to picture the reality of the throne room of heaven because they were suffering. We need to visualize the reality of God ruling and reigning over his creation. We have to submit and entrust ourselves to God's authority because he is the one who created and sustains all things. And so here's where we arrive at our next Question, and this is where we get to chapter 5. If God is on the throne, and yet there is the reality of sin, and of death, and decay, and of evil, how will this reality of sin, and death, and evil be defeated? Because God's on his throne, so who's going to do something about it? You see how the question comes, how will God execute his authority? He rules over creation. He's worthy of our worship, but his holiness, his judgment, who he is as God needs to, be, needs to be brought to bear in the midst of our sin and decay and evil. And so this is where John then turns in his vision in chapter five to answer that question. And the truth that we see here is that Jesus alone is able to save. So here's what I want to do to, to approach chapter five. This is one of the most magnificent chapters of Scripture in all of the Bible. And I want to prepare you with the symbols that you're going to see. Because I want to do is take a few minutes to walk through what we're going to see in chapter 5 before I read it. And then I want to just read the chapter, the text this passage of Scripture and let it stand on its own. Because I can tell you, friends, I do not need to add anything to what Revelation 5 says. So here's what we're going to do. Let's walk through uh, a few comments here about what we're about to see in chapter 5. And then I will read it. So this whole chapter describes the transfer of authority from God the Father to God the Son. In other words, we just saw in chapter 4 that God is, is sitting on the throne, and so now who's going who's to achieve God's plan for history? It's the transfer of authority to the Son, where God a, a the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit will rule over creation together. The second thing we're going to see is that there's a, a picture here of a scroll, and I want to describe what a scroll, what this symbol means in, in the ancient world. You see, the scroll here in chapter 5 is symbolic of God's plan for all of redemptive history. His redemptive plan for everything. And, and the background here is that in the ancient world, and basically every civilization of this day and age, Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Rome, it was common to write a contract in a scroll and then to roll it up, and the, the words of that contract would be sealed with seven seals. And the only person who was able to open that contract was the person who was going to execute all of the details of that contract. The only person who could break the seals was the one who was going to achieve what that contract stipulated. Everywhere in the ancient world this was common practice and so John, uh, uh, that symbol is here in the midst of this chapter. Now the question, Let me another thing to comment on, the question that's going to be asked in this chapter relating to that scroll is how is God's plan for redemption that is contained in that scroll? His plan to, to redeem the earth and, and humanity and to, to, to rid the world of evil and sin and death. The question is, who is going to be able to open those seals? Who can fulfill the contract? And you know what? If no one is able to do it, then we are doomed. And what you're going to see in this chapter is that John realizes that if no one is able, no one in all of creation is able to open it. And so if no one can open it, then we are lost and stuck and going to die in our sin. And so all we could do if no one is worthy is to weep. Now, what you're going to see in this chapter is Jesus is pictured with four symbols. Let me go through them quickly. He's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This symbolizes his power and his victory. This is Genesis chapter 49, verses 4 to 10. He's described as the root of David, which means he's the shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah chapter 11. He's the one who sits in the kingly line of David. He's described as the lamb who looks as if it had been slain, in other words, a lamb who is pierced, sitting on the throne, the lamb is a, is a symbol of sacrifice and substitution for our sins. But the key here is that Jesus conquers as the, as the lion. He's the conqueror by sacrifice. We'll see that in this passage. Jesus is also described with seven horns and seven eyes, which is interesting, right? That's symbolic, the seven is of perfection, of his power in the seven horns, and then his omniscience, his his, his omnipresence, his, his his all-knowing nature in his having seven eyes, so his perfect knowledge. Now, what we're gonna see here is that the main result of what Jesus does is to redeem a people. And the language is so specific. He redeems these people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Don't miss this, friends. God cares about every ethnic group and culture in this world. And, and, and you know what? As Christians, we of all people should care about the, 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 the myriad of people that are on this earth. And the beauty of the differences that we have. Because you know what? Jesus died for every people group, every nation, every language, and there will be believers from across history and across this world who look different and come from different nations and languages that will be present in heaven with us. And that is a a reason to celebrate the goodness of God creating humanity in the way that He did. And you see, He redeems us for a purpose. It's to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. You'll see that in Revelation 5. And to reign on the earth. In other words, the victory the Lamb achieves is to redeem us, to finally fulfill what humanity was to do, which is to be God's stewards and rulers on this earth. See, this chapter results in worship, and we're going to see that. And this worship starts at the center of the throne and it works its way outwards in concentric circles to include all of creation. Because what God did through Jesus reverberates to every corner of the earth. So here's what we're going to do. Let's go to God's word. Let me read chapter five. This chapter that describes the beautiful reality of the gospel. And friends, I, I want this text of scripture to blow your mind blows mine. I want you to see the pitiful reality of our sin and the glory of the sacrifice of Christ and the fact that Jesus is deserving of all worship. So let's read. Hear these words from Revelation chapter 5. and wept because no one was found in the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand They encircled the throne and the living creatures and elders and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise." and honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. Friends, we're going to join in the worship that is happening right now in heaven because of what Jesus did, that he is able to open the scroll. We're going to watch a video, actually, of a song that describes using the exact language of Revelation 5. It is a song from this chapter. And we're going to listen to the words of this song and watch. And then after we watch this, we will sing this song together. And I want you to see how this song sets up the desperate state of our sin and death and evil. And then how this song expresses that central truth of Revelation 5. That, and answers this question, who is able to open the scroll So let's watch together.